Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 260, and today's guest is Joe Gagnon, CEO of 1UP Health. Pop quiz, what do you think would be the most detrimental to your health? Lack of food, lack of water, or lack of sleep? Well, you'll have to listen to this episode to find out, as Joe shares the answer, and it may surprise you. Not only is Joe a successful startup CEO, but he is also an endurance athlete. I'm talking about someone who is pushing their body to the ultimate limits. Things like running a marathon a day for six days across six continents, which is something that he actually accomplished. As he shares, running a startup is a lot like being an endurance athlete in terms of the mentality and the commitment not to quit when things get hard or challenging. Your mindset is so critical to the foundation of your success. 1UP Health is an intelligent health data platform powered and connected by FHIR, which is an acronym in the healthcare industry. Their platform connects an ecosystem of payers, providers, patients, life sciences, and app developers within a trusted interoperability network. The company announced a $25 million Series B round of funding, which was led by F-Prime Capital. Joe also has his own podcast called Chasing Tomorrow, where he interviews other endurance athletes with his co-host, Dave Proctor. I'll include a link to it in the show notes. In this episode of our podcast, we have lots of great topics, including Joe's background story and how he got his career started at ENY, plus his journey in the tech industry, all the details on 1UP Health and how they are disrupting the healthcare industry, plus growth plans ahead in terms of hiring, lots of fun stories from his experience as an endurance athlete, how to prepare yourself for a CEO position at a startup, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, this week's episode is sponsored by MarketMuse, a content intelligence platform that sets the standard for content quality. Their AI-powered software enables companies to create predictably better content at scale that increases traffic and engagement, improves productivity, and drives revenue. Get more out of your content with packages starting at just $0 a month, that's free, plus you can get 20% off the MarketMuse standard plan by using our code FIZZ20, that's F-I-Z-Z-2-0, at checkout. Go to marketmuse.com to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Joe. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Keith. Always fun to get to spend some time with you. Likewise, I'm excited to talk to you for many, many reasons. One, you run your own podcast, so this is old hat as far as uh, what we're doing here today. Uh, and your podcast, ironically, is about the first topic we're going to talk about, and that's being an endurance athlete. So things that you've done, I, I love a good 5k. I love it. Even a 10k, right? I think I've run a mile, like a 10 mile race once. And I, I thought I was going to train for a marathon, but I hit my limit, but I love, you know, running, you know, three miles, three and a half miles on the weekends, Saturday, Sunday, whatever. So you've done things that are extraordinary. So talk about your experience as an endurance athlete and, and how that compares to running a startup. Yeah. So it's, a, it's a good question, you know, in the, so the journey kind of way of thinking of life picks up somewhere about 20 years ago, I was what I would consider a certified workaholic. I had gotten to a point where I was pretty darn successful at what I did from you know, it's not nine to five, right? It was seven in the morning to 11 at night. And I found that for all of that, right, for all of that and the success that you could have from making what one would consider a reasonable amount of money, that it felt empty, you know, and I was like, oh my gosh, 
is this really what I'm going to do for the next like 40 years? This just doesn't seem to compute. And so um, I realized, you know, in, in always in the rearview mirror, it's easy to tell the story. I'm not sure how clear it was back then, but you know, <laughs> what I realized was that to carry a strong mind, you need a strong body. And ultimately, early in our lives, that sort of comes naturally because just the way evolution works, we're strong and then we get weak. And I felt if I was going to maintain this kind of level of effort that I would need to, you know, be able to have a stronger body, not just strong mind and strong will. And so I started off not that dissimilar, you know, I ran a mile, but that was, oh my God, this is so long. And then my sort of own personal competitive instincts kicked in. I'm like, well, maybe I could do two, maybe I could work out two days a week, three days a week. And just, it started to get bigger and bigger. And then I made, at the time I was um, in a startup and made this commitment that I wrote about in our newsletter, things that don't exist anymore, newsletters. And I said, I'm going to work out five days a week for six months. And I was like, oh my God, what did I just do? I publicly committed to this. And so I had to sort of reorient just everything about my schedule. You know, I had to start getting up earlier. I had to, you know, sort of discard some of those, you know, sort of fun, but not really rewarding kinds of activities like watching television and, and just wrote a plan out. And I have this Excel spreadsheet that I've kept track of since 2001 of what I've done literally every day in my athletic, you know, sort of journey. And what was happening was that the same discipline that I was bringing to, you know, putting business plans together and driving a sales organization or closing deals was the same as this discipline, which is, you know, athletics, you make a commitment, you know, you wouldn't sign up for a $5 million quarter if you weren't going to deliver on it. You wouldn't sign up to run, you know, a marathon or a hundred miles if you hadn't really thought through the implications of it. So early on, I realized there was a lot of synergy between really at the end of the day, you start everything with a personal commitment you're making to yourself. And once you've done that, then you can make those commitments to other people. And I think that's where we miss. When we say we're going to close a deal or we're going to run 10K tomorrow, we've only committed to the other person, but not to ourselves. So then hmm, sometimes it doesn't happen. And so, yeah, I, I mean, it could go on forever, but it just kept growing. And I just liked every year I'd say, oh, I could do more here. I could do two days of work, two days of workouts a day. I could do seven days of workouts. I could ride my bike 15,000 miles. I could exercise a thousand hours a year. I just kept on dreaming up something that seemed as big as, you know, close a hundred million dollar deal. And then once you say that, then you have to build a plan that gets you there. And I just love doing that. Well, this goes also into um, your recruiting. So I thought this was interesting because you parlayed what you do as it relates to this endurance uh, athlete persona into a recruiting tactic for one-up health. So yeah. uh, let me set the stage. So you ran 111 miles, one mile for every employee. Yeah. And part of this was a 106 mile race in Georgia called the cruel jewel. So, so when I hear that, I'm like, what? So talk about this idea, how to come to fruition and then what that race was like. You know, the, the, the world of recruiting is rather competitive now, you know I mean? Like you, the best people are really hard to get. And I think you have to have something to say. So you have to have something to say on multiple levels. 
what's the employee value proposition? Okay, so there's one part's compensation, one part that's culture, one part that's the work. And I feel that, you know, the compensation stuff is sort of pretty locked. The work is pretty locked. But really, at the end of the day, what is our life about but being with other people? And you want to be with people who are intriguing, people who are doing something hard, who have some credibility in the commitments they're making into the marketplace. And so I felt that, you know, if I could go out and do something hard, then other people would believe, like if I did that personally, that they believe that I would do that at work too, you know, because we're still you know, a new entrant in a massive multi-billion dollar marketplace. So got to feel different. So I had planned on this race and, you know, not that I needed another level of sort of pressure to finish it, but I had done the five miles, well, like five miles course is not that hard, but then I was like, oh, if I add up the 106, the 105 over this three day period, I would do 111 miles. And, um, and so we started on that plan as just another, and I have other examples, Keith, over my lifetime where I've done the same thing, which is like, I don't want to make an assertion. I want to give you a proof point because then you should be able to assess, you know, whether that was easy or hard rather than just my word. So did the five, that was easy. Then I, the day before it was just a warm up, And then I got out there on the course and I found that they named this race, the cruel jewel for a very big reason. Cause <laughs> just plays with your mind first mm -hmm. you don't know it's 106 miles because the cruel jewel 100 but they add six extra miles for you so you're like oh that's not fun and then they sort of torture you and say like they put up signs and like here's the extra six miles you wouldn't have to done if you did 100 and there's almost nothing flat you're just going up or down up or down and you know you run through the night rained at one point you know i'm sleepy and tired and and I really thought about this quite a few times and very deeply, which is, okay, you told everyone you're going to go do this. So there is no quit. Right. And, and what I realized was that everything I was fighting was discomfort. So I had blisters on my feet. My knee hurt because I fell. You know, my back was bothering me from carrying the backpack of supplies I needed. I had no support on this race. You know, I was out in the middle of the woods getting cold at night. And I'm like, you know what, though? This is just discomfort and discomfort doesn't rise to the level of quit. And I think that's the same work, you know, like sometimes it gets hard, you know, the problems are hard, the customers want it cheaper, you know, they want it sooner. And it, it, but none of that is ever a reason to not continue on. And so I knew that there was no way, unless they were taking me out on some kind of stretcher that I was gonna let anyone down and not get that cruel jewel buckle at the end of this race and cross the finish line smiling. As a matter of fact, you know, the other thing I found out there was there were a lot of very miserable people and many of them quit. And every time I saw someone, they'd be like, hey, look at that guy smiling. And I'm like, you know, shouldn't I be? Like, isn't this somewhat of a privilege to be able to get the chance to suffer like this? It's, it's not a burden. This is the journey. This is the exploration. This is what startups are about. And it's the privilege to get to do something hard and to do it in, in really a semi-controlled way anyway. It's like not that, you know, I'm in a war with people shooting at me. And so I think it's so much about reframing. And this is about mindset.
in the best at all activity, whether it's athletics, work, family, or otherwise, is bring the right mindset. Be happy, but never satisfied, and you will find extraordinary opportunity you never would have seen otherwise. I love that advice. It's a thousand percent of what I believe too. Like mindset and attitude is so much a large part of the equation. You know, hard work, of course, but mindset and attitude is so, so critical because if you come into it thinking you'll fail or it's hard, it sucks, negative attitude, you're going to fail. No doubt. That's you're just carving your own path. Well, let's uh, rewind the clock. So let's talk about your background. So where, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? So, <laughs> you know, the, the eras sort of date you, but uh, I grew up outside New York City in the Bronx. I uh, went to school there for eight years, low to middle income family. My dad worked for the New York City schools as a social worker. You know, we had what I think we're sort of losing a little bit, which is a very strong family unit. It was an Italian Roman Catholic family, you know, and what did we do? We got together with our cousins and our family every week. We ate food. You know, we didn't get into too much trouble because there were a lot of people watching, you know, aunts, uncles, mother, father, neighborhood, you know, it was like there was, you felt accountable to sort of the standard that they were going to hold for you. And so that's what I knew, you know, it was like, this is the way the world should be. And while we didn't have much, you know, like, I don't know, I got one blazer in my whole life and we never went out to dinner and, you know, you brought your lunch if you went uh, somewhere. Um, I realized that, you know, I was going to start working. So I started working when I was 16 at McDonald's and I've been working ever since, you know, uh, I was a little tiny kid. So today the language we would use is being bullied. Back then was just, you know, mean kids. And I was made fun of because I had this squeaky voice and, you know, and in high school, I was a scrawny kid. So I didn't have the football thing, nothing going on, you know, no girlfriends, nothing. So, but I found college and then I found work afterwards to be a place where I could sort of flourish because I could apply myself. And I wanted to prove everyone wrong, you know, that I wasn't just sort of a nobody. And I uh, just sort of decided that the way to do that was to outwork everyone. And, and you know, a lot of people weren't willing to do that. I was. You know, it, it was funny because like in the beginning, like my third day of work, my car was stolen. My girlfriend broke up with me. I had to move back in my parents' house because I had no money, you know, and she was like, this is not an auspicious start. But I always then went back to like, it's either the beginning or the end and I always made it into the beginning. Like, it doesn't matter. Like that was yesterday. What are we going to turn tomorrow into? And and so I just kept taking, you know, more and more opportunity for risk if someone said, like I turned into the greatest volunteer of all time, Keith. Like I would, if someone said, who wants to work on this project? I would say, oh, I will. Like never even asked a question. And everyone found me to be a go-to guy then, you know? And so I got all the best projects because I never made it hard on anyone. I'm like, I got it. You don't have to worry about it. Take this off your plate. And start realizing, wow, you know, like everyone I knew wanted to buy a lottery ticket and find an easy way out. You know, instead, what I realized was I got my lottery ticket when I was born. Like, that was it. And it's sort of written up in the dictionary. Like, we were talking about mindset. You know, it's optimism and it's grit, it's determination, it's patience, it's enthusiasm and optimism and courage, conviction, commitment. These words are there for us to grab and do something with. You know, they are who we can become. And when you use those words to be part of the persona that you are building, the brand 
of person you're becoming, then what lottery ticket would you want? Like, I wouldn't even want to know the end game. I wouldn't want someone to hand me a million dollars. It's just like, it would take all the fun out of it. Like, why do you want a shortcut? Like, we're only here for a little while. Like, I want to feel it all. I want to be part of it. I want to know the ups and the downs. And we'll talk a little bit about the six continent thing later on. But, you know, it was a, it was like, you put me in the middle of it. I'll get on an airplane. I'll go anywhere and I will work on it and we will get a success. I have some fun doing it and we'll get the rewards that come along with that. So I just, you know, wash, rinse, repeat on that model. I made partner at Ernst & Young, one of the youngest ever back when I was 35 years old. And I just kept going. And the first time someone asked me to do a startup, I just said, yes. <laughs> when I left Ernst & Young, the managing director of the whole firm said to me, you know, you're making the biggest mistake of your life. I'm like, I am? He said, yeah, you just cut your pay in 80 by 80%. You know, you're going to go to this startup. You have no idea what's going to happen. And I'm like, I know, but that's why I'm going. Like, I, I was here 10 years. I had it all sort of like, that can't be it. Like, I didn't care about the country club, you know, and the BMW and the big house. Like, having that wasn't satisfying. So, so it continued from there. You know, it was just like one bold move after another. I had great family support. Everyone was like, yeah, like. We never bought into that lifestyle anyway. So let's have, um, you know, a different level of life. And that's what I've found throughout. Well, then you went from ENY to uh, Mainspring, which is a firm I remember because i that's when I was starting to really cut my teeth into recruiting. It was when the upstart consulting firms were coming about like Mainspring and Viant, Scient, IXL, yeah. Razorfish. Yes. Oh, my God. I started, we were one, I was one of like the first five. So we sort of call ourselves the wow. fam founding group and um yeah john Connolly, who was the ceo and my best buddies we you know we grew to 350 people in two years we hit mm -hmm. near 50 million we took the company public and then sold it to ibm you know it was i opened four offices ran the consulting business sold the biggest deals that we had built one of the greatest teams of all time and i'm still to this day sort of like pinch myself that i was part of that team you know and was oh my god I, I don't know you could it'd be very hard to replicate what happened then and and you know the other thing Keith was we tried to go public right as the Nasdaq crashed in 2000 you know hold mm -hmm. the offer went back out again six months later had a you know reasonable success then the market crashed again that's when we sold the company and you know it's like Joseph Campbell's hero's journey man this was like up down and around but like back to, well, what else are you here to do? Like, it's not, you know, and so I found myself at IBM and that was confusing. Like who wanted to be part of a 400,000 person organization? But, you know, I had a reasonable job. I became the global head of retail and services business. And I realized that I could learn something being there. You know, I could learn about scale. I could learn what it means to run a global business. And I could learn about big deals. So I might as well even if it wasn't my choice, I might as well take away what I can from being there. And I spent five years there, had some wild success, you know, some of the greatest sales successes I'll ever have in my life, you know, $108 million deal at Circuit City and global deals around the world. I spent about 45% of my time outside the US traveling the world and, you know, um, found my way out of there in five years to go be a CEO of a Series A company up in Massachusetts to, to build you know, so the next generation of drive-through systems and then online ordering systems for fast casual and casual dining restaurants. And 
that was fun. I didn't know what I was doing. Like, surprised they hired me as a CEO. Like, what does a CEO do? Like, I was a partner, I was a business leader, but you don't really fully understand the implications of that until, you know, you're there and you're like, oh, I guess it's all on my back. There's like no one to ask for help. <laughs> Well, wasn't Exit 41 a little bit ahead of its time? Like, I remember, like, I see when I go to a fast casual restaurant, I always think of Exit 41. I'm like, they kind of carve the path for all this now, like of, of what the ordering experience is like. Yeah, I'm so impressed. You know so much about all this stuff I did. You know, we literally were 10 years ahead of the world. It was yeah. raised 50 million bucks. You know, Fidelity was our lead investor for a long time. You know, interestingly enough, I'll come back to it, but Years later, I was out making a call on Square. You know, Square readers now, like mm -hmm. all rage and point of sale. We implemented the first Square reader into an iPad back in 2008. And I was wow. talking to those guys. I'm like, you know, how early or late were they? They were like, you're one of the first people who ever used it. Like, it was <laughs> so early. And it was like, oh, like, yeah, I guess we were just trying to figure out how you could reframe the shopping experience, but people still like to make phone calls at the time. We're still faxing and lunch orders. You know, mm -hmm. we did close quite a few deals, including one in Cairo that I closed at the Americana restaurant group and they had a thousand restaurants and closed a, a deal by flying to Cairo <laughs> to sell our <laughs> software. Oh my God, what a cultural experience that was. And, but, you know, we were fearless. We back to this sort of like, you know, and in the middle of this, right, I'm becoming an Ironman doing Ironman racing. So I, my life at that point was pretty focused. I got up at 4.20. I was on my bike at 4.40. I rode 50 miles in the morning. I would then go to work till six o'clock. Then I would go to the gym and either get in the pool or run on the treadmill. And I did this pretty much every day. Like I was a nut job, you know. I ate a dozen egg whites for breakfast every morning. I mean, I was like, you know, Try and, and doing the CEO thing and being bold and like, but you know, was what a five years that was. Yeah, you know, I was I was on the edge every day, sleeping four and a half hours, you know, pushing at the limit. <laughs> I think there are a lot of people who told me I should have sort of backed off a little, but like I didn't fully understand how to do that. And so um, so we got through that period, <laughs> which was good. Still married, miracle. Uh, had two girls who done very well for themselves, but it was all about sort of intensity. And um, yeah, you know, and I go back to like when I started on this journey and I was just this little kid going to school in the Bronx, you know, trying to survive. You don't ever imagine that that's where you're going to end up later. You know, it's just mm -hmm. mm. so. So then, you know, I. Uh, I then left and went to work at eDialog for a while. We sold eBay. Um, I had some fun at Penn Foster, which was an online education school owned by Bain Capital Ventures, connecting me back to Mainspring. Did that for a while. And, you know, and it just kept growing. And then um, I ended up at this company called Aspect Software, running the cloud business for them. And so, uh, and I had always had this dream of, trying to climb Mount Everest. The problem is it's a 90 day kind of thing. You have to sort of quit your job. I didn't have the guts to quit. So I had to come up with some big idea of something I was gonna go do. And I concocted this idea that I would run a marathon on six continents in six days. 
And so it took me about a year of planning because I was going to do this myself. You had to figure out the commercial flights. Where would you go? There's no route. Like, you don't know where to start. Where do you go? Uh, and, and, you know, it wasn't impossible to imagine. I had already run like 40 marathons. I, you know, had flown 4 million miles around the world. I had been in all of these countries. So it wasn't con- intellectually difficult to think about, but it certainly was going to be one heck of a challenge. And so I um, finally figured it out, you know, go Sydney, Singapore, Johannesburg, London, Sao Paulo, LA. And I got this all lined up. It's April of 2017. And, um, you know, the thing that I wrote to myself a little sticky note when I started, I said, the lows will be the highs. The lows will be the highs. So I went looking for that really tough place you want to go, like this miserable, and you know what happened? (laughs) Never found it. Reframed everything, Keith. I reframed everything. So none of it was like, you couldn't find a low because they were all highs. So there was no low. So it's such a weird thing because it's like, how could that spin it upside down? If the low is a high, when you find it, you feel good. You should, you never feel like, I mean, of course, my legs were sore. I was tired of sitting in coach, you know, but, but this was like, a, I mean, the most amazing experience ever. Uh, it's just, when you hear about it, it's like a marathon, a day across six days and six continents. I'm just like, man, <laughs> that guy is amazing. And, and who would have ever imagined? Like, see, this is the thing, though, that I whoever is listening we would go back in the way back machine, right? Say, all right, I was graduating college and you sat down and someone told you these were the 10 different things you were going to do in your life. You know, I don't know. Let's say mm-hmm. make a million dollars in a year, you know, uh, be a CEO, run six, like all these things that could write down. You'd be like, <laughs> that's funny. <Right. laughs> she would believe it. Like, and so like, what did I know? Like, I just sort of went at it with this sort of, I didn't want to ask permission for anything, you know? I believe that privilege is earned, not granted, that the life that we're living is ours to choose. And there were a lot of people who told me, don't do these things. Oh, you shouldn't do that. since you could get hurt. What if the planes don't take off? You know, what if something bad? I'm like, I'm going to go find out. Okay. You can hold on to all your whatever. I'm going to go find out. And so I don't buy the sort of, you know, and, and listen, on our podcast, we've had a lot of redemption stories, people that are 10 times worse than me, who decided that that wasn't okay. It's not okay to live on the wrong side of the checks and use that as the excuse to stay there. Like, yeah, maybe it just takes longer, but it's not impossible. And I know that that's like sort of like, oh, well, you don't understand. I'm like, no, I think actually I do in my own context. And so I just offer people to give yourself a plan, give yourself the time, make commitments to yourself, make choices. Like, hey, look, I can't tell you any shows that are on Netflix. I don't know because I don't sit and watch them. But that's my choice. I got 168 hours in the week. I'm going to use them productively. And that's what we have control over. And so, yeah, when I did that and finished, it was like, huh okay, that wasn't hard enough. So I'll tell you just the next part of the story. So I had done a lot of hard things. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to go do a 200 mile race around Lake Tahoe in September after finishing this in April. And uh, 
So I went and, you know, it's 200 miles, probably takes, should take about 70 hours. You know, you sort of sleep in the woods or something like that. And you're just out there wandering around up and down mountains. And at some point I hurt my ankle pretty badly. And so the last 20 miles, I was going about a mile an hour. I was walking with my walking sticks and it was just impossibly painful, you know, but I knew I could finish. So I was going to finish this thing. And, um, and so when I came around sort of the last turn and I saw the finish line and I just actually burst into tears, completely unexpected, not in thinking like, oh my God. And I was just crying with emotion. And I realized you know, whether it was in exactly that moment or shortly after, that I had finally gotten to the point where I proved to myself after all these years, 50 plus years, whatever it was, that I was worthy. That everything I was running from from a kid, that I was trying to outwork every single person, proved to the world, I thought. But in fact, it was proved to myself. Proved to myself that my time here was worthy. Like, I'm okay. And... You know, whether you believe Maslow's hierarchy makes sense or not, but that self-actualization piece does not make sense until one gets there. But you sometimes have to rip yourself apart and put yourself back together again to figure that out. And I did. And I survived it. And since then, you know, life has been uh, even more of a blessing because now I know my purpose is to help people achieve their versions of the life and potential they want to achieve and so but boy it wasn't uh wasn't something that i knew i was going to set out to do just turned out to be that is the way that it all evolved and it's like oh wow (laughs) imagine that what's the longest distance that you've run in one effort like not the sleeping like the furthest you've gone so that was um a 300 mile race across florida um, back in February, uh, that also took 70 hours. Um, so that's probably, you know, in one push, the biggest done, you know, across a week's time, much more than that. But yeah, that was, uh, I like these activities that, you know, conspicuously push you into places where you have to figure out how to react to the moment. Like when you're hallucinating, what do you do? You know, because you're hallucinating because you're low on electrolytes, you haven't been sleeping. And I got pretty good at figuring out what to do now when I'm hallucinating. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, don't look at the trees, look at the path. Or, you know, I sat on a log to crawl over it and it started spinning. And I'm like, oh my God, it's spinning. Of course the log isn't spinning, but I was... So, but I like that because it's this uh, exploration of like, okay, now you're starting to get to some of the edges and it's the edge where you find out way more than you would otherwise. So how much do you sleep? And then you just get up and start running again. Like, like it's just. Oh, in those, in those things, maybe you'll sleep one hour every two days. Really? Uh, yeah. That's why you're on the edge, you know, yeah, it should be a question for your, uh, for your next cocktail party is which kills you first lack of eating lack of drinking or lack of sleep so I think the, drinking right like hydration uh, would be number one no you can go probably mm, 
Well, you could probably go a month without eating. You can go about two weeks without drinking and you can go only five days without sleeping. Really? Yeah, because yeah, you, you, you mess up the brain wiring and then everything just sort of, that's why you sometimes will fall asleep when you don't want to. Right. Because the system is trying to take over and say, oh, emergency, <laughs> danger, danger. Uh, so, you know, it's it's not maybe for all, but I certainly know that I have a dif- different kind of confidence in in all that goes on, you know, from these activities. And the same with, you know, I was near bankruptcy many times as an entrepreneur. You know, I wrote a $200,000 check to cover payroll once because I didn't get funding in time. You know, you have to be truly willing to touch the edges on both the endurance athlete side and on the entrepreneur side, because otherwise it doesn't work because growth only happens really through that disruption of significance. Otherwise these systems operate pretty much to the mean, but not a lot happens there. It's okay. It's not criticizing anyone for that kind of choice, but I just know that there's others that can do more and there's more to do in life. So what's, what's the hardest track that you've had to run? Like the most challenging, you've had lots of challenging scenarios, I'm sure. So what was the, the hardest? I, I did this double crossing of the um, Grand Canyon called the Rim to Rim to Rim uh, on 4th of July, bad idea, about five years ago. And um, so I was going to do it by myself, just solo support, fill a little bit of water they have along the way. And I went down, went over the Colorado, went past Phantom Ranch on the way. So you go 20, like five miles out, 25 miles back, you go up and down. Temperature was starting to get high, about 100, 110. And on the way out, a ranger met me and uh, he said, uh, sorry, but we got to close the trail for a little while. I'm like, no, 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 I'm in a rush. I got to go. He's like, okay, well, I'll escort you for a little while. And he escorts me. And on the trail was um, a dead body underneath a tarp. And someone had died of, um, you know, whatever, heat, uh, exhaustion. And so so that's sort of like weird, but I keep going and then I go to the other side and then I come back and I completely misjudged my water and I ran out. It's 125 degrees in the canyon. My head is literally boiling. I sat down and my heart rate was at 170 sitting. It's like I was wow. really not in a good place. So like, okay, calm down a little. Like I have this backpack that has a bladder maybe there's a little water left in it i can like get out of the straw so i take the backpack off and as i take the backpack off my phone goes flying over this little ravine down into (laughs) it's like oh god now i gotta go down so i down climb into this ravine get the phone miraculously landed on some little patch of dirt so it didn't break because i was going to need this in case of an emergency so i climb back up i'm now like three or four miles from the next water stop My heart rate won't slow down because what happens, it's called heart rate drift. The drift is happening from the body trying to cool itself. So it's pumping a lot of blood because blood is a cooling system. However, this is getting in the way of anything else I could do. And I just sort of kept doing the micro goals. Okay, get to the next rock, get to the next turn. Just, you know, just you got to go. Now, mind you, like on a day when it's 125, there's no one else out there but you, which is what happened to 
poor guy. And I'm not like almost replicating the entirety of that circumstance. <laughs> oh my God. So finally, uh, I, of course I'm here. So I made it. I made it right. to the one place you could buy something. And I walk in and this young guy goes to me, he said, wow, you don't look very good. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> he said, let me help you. So I got like these, there's this legend of the lemonade at Phantom Ranch. If you've ever gone across the Grand Canyon. And it is the best lemonade. You'd spend a hundred dollars for a cup of lemonade at that point, you know. Absolutely. And two lemonades. He fills up my water. He says, I'm going to run over to my camp and get you some food because I'd run out of that too. And then he escorted me for like three miles on my way back over to Colorado. And I just sort of limped my way up back to the top. And uh, I'd say that that day, because there was literally no support and this heat thing had just sort of like, it was like getting hit by a truck. You know, I've been out in the woods cold and all of that and had to figure out how to make it through a night. But this one was, woo. But, you know, we've um, <laughs> we've tested the limits a few times. Absolutely. I think they need to do a show on, maybe it exists and I just haven't seen it. Like, I get, uh, like Naked and Afraid fascinates me how those people sign up to do that just for their own like rating, like their survival rating. They're, they're not winning like a million dollars or some grand prize at the end. They just sign up to show that they can do it. And I just find it fascinating. So this is like, reminds me of that, where it's just like, you just go and do this on your own somewhere, somehow. Like there should be uh, a reality show on this type of endurance yeah, athlete. I think that, and, and I think that there are quite a few people, um, not tens of thousands, of course, but who explore this. The thing that's interesting, Keith, is that we often, we do it in relative anonymity. And if it weren't for this conversation, of course, I know I wrote my book and I put in there the six continent stuff, but for the most part, we are not looking for attention and right. we just go and do what we do. And so it's, it's a little bit different than, you know, um, the NBA basketball stars, you know, walking down the court preening because it's $30 million isn't enough. And yeah, they are great athletes and they work hard, but we're on the other side of this thing. You know, we're we're exploring the edges of of this universe, trying to make sense of consciousness and being and and suffering as a mechanism to find out more about it. Because when you go deeper and start thinking, the answers don't come naturally. And this is one of the ways to do that. And then it strengthens me, you know, for like I, I've been on boards, of course, because the companies are running. Last board before here, the lead board member said to me, he said, man, you're just like way too calm. I said, don't confuse calmness with intensity. Like I'm as intense as they get, but I've been through a lot. I'm not going to sort of just like freak out because things are problematic. And so <clears throat> the Navy SEALs practice this, right? You know, comfortable while you're uncomfortable. It's about normalizing these circumstances so you can still perform, right? That's the key. Like, why would you want to know? Like F1 drivers, they're doing crazy stuff, but they got to normalize that down. Otherwise they're driving into the wall. Like you have microseconds. And so it's all about, and it takes a long time. It just does. So, uh, and then once you find it, it's hard to sort of walk away from it. I know some people do, uh, but uh, yeah, it's a, um, it's a place heavily into the dopamine receptor plays heavily into sort of the way our system works uh, generally. And so we keep on rewarding it and it keeps on giving back. And, you know, it's slightly addictive, you know, hopefully not negatively. Right. 
Well, let's talk about what you're up to these days. So uh, One Up Health, you're the CEO. So talk about the company, what you guys do, and then how'd you get involved? Yeah. So the 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 thing that is, is interesting, right? So if you want to like the intersection of intersections here, right? These overlapping Venn diagrams. I'm, I am intently fascinated about the data underlying the system that I'm running here and how that data can help inform me in terms of my athletics. And the One Up Health mission is to start to put together the most complete in a format called FIRE data repository across the industry that combines claims and clinical data to draw insight, inference, and at some level, both individual and population level analytics for us to do better care, lower risk, better quality, minimize reimbursement, right? But it all has to come through the data. So for me, it's a very natural intersection because I think the data is enlightening and I don't, I have to work hard myself personally to catch up to data to tell me, oh, how's my hematocrit doing? You know, how's my glucose level doing? You know, how are other blood markers doing that would tell me my performance level? You know, I've done a lot of performance testing. And so I know all that. And then you would be able to then compare, oh, I slept, I ate, I did this, and you would know. And then maybe you would be in a population of other people like you where you could get a better care plan because something they did helped. So we're setting out to change the industry by building this massive data platform in the cloud on behalf of our customers. And I found my way here because the last company I was running was the A-round investor here, and we had sold the prior company. And he asked me if I could get involved with Ricky, who's the founder. And you know, uh, I met him, and I thought we were a fantastic complement to each other. You know, technologist, business operator. I'm a more experienced entrepreneur. He's a good, naive entrepreneur. And you know, and together we could go build a company because I knew we should be in the enterprise software space, not in the just app developer space. So where the biggest impact that we could make would be. And we've spent the past two years doing that. You know, we have near on over 60 customers. You know, we're working at scale with hundreds of millions and billions of resources and 30 plus million patients on the platform. And, you know, and really at the end of the day, the legacy providers are always going to struggle to transform themselves. You know, it's not that dissimilar to, you know, Tesla wasn't the first to come up with an electric car, right? I mean, actually they came out in the 1890s, but General Motors in 1990 made a very intense effort in California, but realized that they couldn't sell electric cars because it would cannibalize the entirety of their business. So they destroyed those cars and left it to the new entrant called Tesla to make the electric car industry happen. And similar to us, we are going to follow a similar path. There are a lot of fantastic solutions companies in our space but they're stuck in the legacy because that's what they run and own and operate. We, on the other hand, didn't have any of that in our way. And so we were able to start from this new platform environment, run it in the cloud, make it serverless, make it secure, use common standards like JSON and RESTful APIs. And the rest sort of just sort of falls in place for you. And what made this a reality as far as the data side is there was like a regulation change, right? Yeah, so the there's two groups that have been working behind the scenes that are part of, part of Health and Human Services, federal government agency, one called CMS, the Center for Medicaid and Medicaid Services, and then ONC, the Office of the National Coordinator. And between them, they're like, you know, huh, this industry is $3.8 trillion. We can do better. 
And so one of the things they decided was to create a data standard that would evolve from the former data standards called FHIR, F-H-I-R. And so we use that standard prescribed by quasi-government entity as a mechanism to have a standard data model across claims and clinical data. And so you can now, for the first time, not argue about how it could be stored or how it could be shared. You could actually just do that. And the federal government has been great. They've been mandating that all of the kids play together better, you know, so the payers and the providers and the patients are all going to have to use this data standard. And it is opening up for the first real time, the idea of data interoperability in healthcare. The bottom line is that other industries have already done this, you know, retail, travel, transportation, financial services have all decided that if we're going to transform, operate differently, create great opportunity for the consumer all the way to the provider, that we need to stop arguing about things that don't matter, which are the data standards, the way that we share it, the way that we move it, the way that we store it. And so we started there and it uh, affords us an opportunity to be a real player in a short period of time. And what's great from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong here, is like, like I would draw comparisons to like Stripe where you're the platform where you're making information accessible, but companies leverage it to build apps or to power their enterprise systems. Or So you're that key platform play that is obviously the great spot you want to be in. Yeah, that's where we start for sure. And that's where we'll be for a while. Um, it opens up opportunities later on for us to do the analytics as well, for us to help build applications with different thinking. But for the beginning part of this, and the thing that matters the most is getting this data in a format that makes it workable for all of these parties. And we do it as a managed service, so no one has to put much work into it. Point us to your data, we map it, we convert it, we secure it, we make it accessible, we make it computable. That's, you know, <clears throat> for anything we could charge someone, it's a nominal amount relative to what it would cost them to go do this themselves, even if they had the expertise. So, yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're like in the middle in a great way, because ultimately it's going to be the data and the connections that redefine the way the industry works, because ah, there's so many things we could just talk about you're frustrated with, you know, you don't know how much your bill is going to be. So you have no price transparency. You don't know what's approved or not. And you get stuck with something later. You don't really know if this is the right care plan for you because you've never seen anything other than someone telling you, like, what validation do you have against another plan? Not like literally nothing. Like, oh, okay. The doctor said, like, that doesn't mean they're bad people. It just means there's a lot of data that could support everything that they do. There's no competition. We're not customers. We don't have choice. This is like the worst business model ever. And, and it's not like if, if every country in the world operated this poorly, you might say, oh, no one else has solved it. But amen, man, that's not the way it is. So, you know, there is no real incentive for this system to make us healthier. Think about this. If we all were really, really, really healthy, how much would the system cost? Like half, like maybe a trillion, which would be ridiculous. So what would happen? All those people who were getting money wouldn't get it anymore. So there's, it's the same problem with, you ever hear the story of, you know, people who make tires, they could make a tire that lasts 100,000 <laughs> miles, but then they put themselves out of business. That's so right. there is a bit of the irony here. I don't think we're going to, 
if we were here 50 years from now, we'd be talking about a completely different system the way it operates today. Mm-hmm. For the next 10 years, we're going to try and take this very sort of arcane legacy proprietary world and try and make it open so we can get the first order benefit effect, which would be beautiful, which would maybe people live longer, happier, better lives. Maybe not have to run 50 miles to do that. So uh, 1UP Health announced uh, its Series B, $25 million Series B uh, last year. So, so what's the size of the team now? And you, you mentioned you you know you did this interesting recruiting uh, yeah. idea. So, so what, what's the plan in terms of hiring? Yeah, very quickly, that 111, you know, in, in, in these venture-backed companies and with success with recruiting, we, we blew right through that. So we're now up to 125 people. Um, okay. We're planning to end the year at 156. So, you know, another 30 or so people to add. Um, we'll probably do another fundraising round next year, not because we're running out of cash. As a matter of fact, we're selling so much business that we're we're barely burning through our cash. But there'll be an opportunity off of our strong financial performance to raise some more money and show up to balance sheet, which is great. And we'll just keep hiring. You know, there is this interesting dynamic that's happening right now in the industry, which is now there's a lot of people who are worried. Oh, my God, there's layoffs. There might be a recession, blah, blah, blah. Like, I've been through too many of these. High quality, big growth opportunities never are negatively affected. They're always an opportunity. First of all, there's still a lot of money out there to invest. Second of all, there's massive opportunity because these healthcare companies need to transform. And third, we're already made progress. So... We are not overspending, underspending. We're running a really good, solid business that makes it great for people to want to join. You know, we spent the past year and a half trying to define a little bit of like this, who we are. So we defined our core values in four categories. We're human, we're bold, we're visionary, and we're resolute. You know, we're human because we are more than just our work. I found that out. We love our people to do that. You want to be listened to. You want to feel like you're part of something. You want to be respected. And it has to be diverse. You know, we're bold. Like, hey, we're going to go up against the size industry that, you know, I might as well be running against, you know, the fastest hundred yard dash guy ever. But man, I don't care. Going for it. Visionary, we will bring this sort of new way of thinking because that's necessary and it's in our DNA. And then we're resolute. You know, if I could say anything about myself, I tell you, I'm going to get it done. We get it done. And that's that's because that's up to us. And so uh, so we're building a unique culture um, where we think we're very relevant to the way that people think today and want to work today. You know, we don't live in the past. We sort of build a company with some unique and interesting benefits that will get us into the future. You know, one benefit is, for example, if we hired you, Keith, and you were to start on this coming Monday, the first week we pay you to be off, put you on benefits and you don't start till week two. So you'll always get a week off in between your existing job and your new job. And we think that that's a great way for someone to reset, not feel the burden or risk of, oh my God, I just immediately get to work. And we're gonna keep being creative and thoughtful as we create an employee value proposition like that. Now you made the transition from CEO to CEO, but you've been a CEO of startups before, but I thought this would be a good opportunity to give advice to others, whether if they are in that chief operating officer or some other executive position in a company, like what do you think are the key uh, attributes of being a successful startup CEO that someone could work towards? Yeah, I think that the, the key is really, you know, what 
like what is the, there is sort of in some sense there's no job like the ceo doesn't have a job like you're not doing the work anymore what you're really working to do is build a strong team so figuring out talented people how to recruit retain and grow them the second thing is putting in sort of the metrics and the infrastructure that allows you to have insights through the data as to how the business is operating the third is you know, spending time building the right kind of culture that you want so that you can have predictability in who you hire and how you manage them. You have a big impact there. The fourth is coaching and being able to help your team leads, your, your direct reports on how that they should be executing on a daily basis. Empowering, you know, there's a lot of talk about servant leader model, you know, I love it. But people say it and aren't it. You know, the servant leader is the one who's helping the salesperson close a deal, you know, helping think about the architecture, you know, being a resource to human resources in the interviewing process. This is it. Like, ultimately, at the end of the day, the CEO is this person who is threading together and gluing together the organization. And then lastly, being willing to make the hard decisions when you have to make the hard decisions. Some people don't scale with the company. You have to think about how to do that. You have to think about your investor relations and how you're spending the money. You know, there is no backstop. But at the end of the day, you got to be willing to be sort of the backstop for the company. And that's a lot of responsibility. Um, but, you know, you can simulate a lot of these learnings in any role you have. But at some point, um, it is a bit of jumping off a cliff because the first time you do it, and you're in for a surprise. But, you know, we can all survive it as long as we go with a good intent and communicate and um, hold ourselves accountable to what we said we were going to do. So what are three apps you can't live without? Oh, I guess probably my weather app. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Uh, Strava for tracking uh, the running. And then I, you know, I live on my messaging, like, you know, I use messenger a lot to do text and all that kind of stuff. So probably the, the three that I use the most on a daily basis. So I usually ask, you know, good podcast recommendation, but you know, you have your own podcast. So I think it's an opportunity to talk like, so if someone's interested in learning more about endurance athletes, what's the podcast that you uh, have? Yeah, we're, we're called chasing tomorrow. We've now recorded a hundred episodes. It's really about intriguing people doing extraordinary things. So yes, a lot of endurance athletes, but then other really cool and interesting people like, you know, I don't know, a former blue angel pilot or a former Navy seal or, you know, people who have sort of stepped out a little beyond the boundaries of what we would call normal, creating their version of extraordinary. And so they're really interesting, fun dialogues, somewhere between 50 minutes and an hour, never longer. And you get to meet some really cool people. Dave Proctor is my co-host. The two of us do it together because it's sort of more fun to do that. And uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know that I ever thought I'd do 100 episodes, but we do it in broadcast every Friday. and. Uh, been a fantastic, you know, think about getting to meet a hundred really, really amazing people. Like that's just one of these wonderful blessings that you get in life. Very, very cool. Yeah, I agree. It's just to, to have the privilege to do this podcast and talk to individuals like yourself and other founders and what they're going through building companies or CEOs or investors. It's just, uh, it's something that you don't get to a hundred episodes, 200 episodes and beyond, unless it's just something you're passionate about. Exactly. 
Well, Joe, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the great stories in terms of what you've done as an endurance athlete, the great experience in the tech industry, and of course, what you guys are up to at One Up Health. Keith, I really appreciate your um, your willingness to listen and and go on this journey with us. Appreciate your support and wish you the best and look forward to uh, catching up again soon in the future. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.